last week's episode, we were looking at Paul's arrival in Philippi when Paul first comes there and we read about this story in Acts 16. And we saw especially the, uh, the encounter that he had with Lydia down by the river and uh, just the relationship that that ultimately fostered. But there was a second significant uh, event that took place when Paul was in Philippi. And why this was so significant is because we really get a, a first sense of what happens when this Christian message encountered the Roman world. Now, this will draw on uh, what we talked about over uh, a couple of podcasts ago, looking at the imperial cult and the challenge that that brought to the Christians, whose allegiance was firstly and only to Jesus Christ. The challenge of worshipping the emperor as a god, uh, well, it was really impossible for the Christians to do that. And so we see now, especially in this episode, of what that meant for somebody like Paul and what the challenge was for him when he was coming into a place like Philippi. Now, what we also saw last week, especially, was that the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. And what that meant was that the church or the the city itself, the citizens itself, were Roman citizens. They were loyal primarily to Rome. And so it adds sort of an extra element then to the influence of the imperial cult. If worship in the emperor is required throughout the empire, well, you're going to find that especially within cities like Philippi, which are Roman colonies, which are cities loyal to Rome and with that loyal to the emperor himself. And so in our story, we find Paul being arrested and imprisoned overnight in Philippi as a result of preaching the message of Christ. Well, specifically for driving out the uh, the demon out of a young girl, but what the charges are really sort of amount to is the threat that he and Silas posed to the imperial cult, or to, at least to uh, its, its sort of prominence within the city of Philippi. And so we're going to come to that story in a moment, but what I wanted to look at before we get there is what it was like to be imprisoned in the ancient world. Uh, looking at one of the key, sort of the key difference between how we might understand prison today in, in the modern sense to how it was used and understood in the ancient world. And so I suppose starting from where we are, when we think about prison or somebody going to prison, we think about prison as the punishment itself. And so you commit a crime and you will give be given a period of time behind bars. And so obviously the uh, severity of the crime will increase the amount of time that you spend in prison. But this is really a modern practice, a really modern idea or or notion of how prisons are to be used. Uh, Really for most of history, prison was really just a, a holding cell for the real punishment, for the whatever it is that is going to happen to this person. Prison is really just the place to hold you in check uh, until we can take you to trial or, or do whatever it is that we need to do. And so that's the, the number one reason why prisons were ever used. You're going to be brought up on trial or you've been tried and we're going to punish you in a few days. In the meantime, we're going to lock you up so that you don't escape. And it's really just a place to keep you locked away. Uh, And so we see this throughout the book of Acts, um, a number of times where the apostles are imprisoned and they're kept in a a public uh, jail until such time as they're going to be brought out into uh, their trial. Now, one of the uh, things to recognize about this 
prison system was that you weren't looked after when you were in there. You know, there was no meals given to you. Um, there was no one there to care for you. If you didn't have anyone on the outside looking after you, that's it. You're going to starve to death. You may not even make it to trial because, well, you've got no food uh, and no one's going to be there to provide that for you. So your situation is really quite dire. You really have to have a connection with somebody in order just to survive the imprisonment. And in many cases, what you're going to find is that to be in prison is a real is a real matter of shame. And so people aren't going to want to be associated with you. They're not going to want the shame themselves of being seen to be looking after somebody in prison. So that's your primary reason. Now, another reason why prisons will be used are to hold you until you pay back your debt. So we call this a debtor's prison. And the idea is that you owe somebody money and so they have the right to imprison you until you pay it back, which kind of defeats the purpose. If you need to be working to make the money to pay somebody back and yet you're in prison, I don't see how that works. But nevertheless, that was what prison was for. In fact, it wasn't until the advent of bankruptcy rules that um, this all changed, that that sort of mitigated against the need for something like a debtor's prison. But really, this was one of the primary reasons why you would be held in prison apart from having to go to trial. So these are some of the sort of two of them, only really the only reasons why a prison was ever used. Again, prison was just there as the place to hold you until such time as we can do with you as it is we're going to do. Now, another thing to uh, sort of understand about the ancient world is how they define crime. Now, again, we think about crime as everything from, you know, a petty misdemeanor, maybe shoplifting right up into, you know, mass genocide and everything in between. And all of these are considered crimes and all of them dealt with in a court system. And so the punishments will be determined by whatever the level of the crime is. And we have this um, sort of default idea in the West of equal justice, irrespective of your status irrespective of your wealth, the richest person and the poorest person can expect the same uh, system or, or the same um, fairness in the, in the course of their being tried. Now, of course, that doesn't work out in reality, but that's at least the basic idea. Well, that was a very different situation in the ancient world. So crime in the ancient world is really only concerned with uh, matters of the state. So crime is really, you're, you're considered a criminal if you have done something that violates the public good, that, that undermines the public order. And so treason is a primary example of this. This is really the worst possible crime that you can be convicted of. And now you might say, well, hang on, what about murder? That's surely that's a worse thing than treason. But actually murder was more of a private affair. If we're just two, you know, everyday low status families and you murdered somebody in my family, it would be expected that we would just deal with that as families. We would just work out the punishment for the person who has committed the crime and the driving factor uh, to bring about that punishment would be the honour of the family. You don't want to be uh, part of a family that's associated with somebody who's committed murder. And so you're going to want to deal with that person accordingly. You want to restore the honor of the family. And so most of the things that we would consider to be crimes were really only dealt with um, amongst the families or, or the, those who were involved. Again, courts and, and the criminal proceedings were really only concerned with 
uh, matters of state, matters of issues like treason or where you've be pre- you're proving a threat to the public order, to the public stability. So where this really changes, in fact, this is how the world was. This is how prisons worked for most of human history, really only up until a few hundred years ago. So even up to the 16th and 17th century, you, you were publicly punished as an example. Um, you weren't, again, put in jail for a set period of time as a punishment. You were just punished on the spot. And so your common sort of punishments would be flogging if it was maybe a petty misdemeanor or hanging if it was a more serious crime. And there really wasn't much else. If you were convicted of a crime, you were punished and it was done publicly so that everyone could see, don't do this because this is what's going to happen to you if you do the same thing. Now, when we come to the 18th century, we get opposition to this. People are becoming more uh, liberal in the way that they think, more sort of humanitarian in the way they think as a result of the Enlightenment. And they're realizing this is just barbaric. This is we, we can't do it this way anymore. And so be, you start to get opposition to these arbitrary sort of punishments. And so as a result, um, prison starts to be used, um, well, uh, or, or a person, what they argue is a person should be punished with prison rather than hanging for all but the most serious crimes. So unless it's the most extreme thing like murder, um, you can be punished by just being sent to prison. And so this idea comes into societies it starts certainly into western societies where it's more about reform than it is uh, just arbitrarily punishing the person now that changes the whole social fabric because what it means is rather than just hanging all the criminals and or you know flogging them and being done with it what you get instead are prisons starting to overfill because remember prisons have only ever been used to hold people for trial for until such time as we can deal with them appropriately. They weren't designed to house people over long periods of time and certainly not lots of people because previously all these lots of people that were criminals were punished on the spot and then sent on their way or hung. And so prisons quickly overflow. Uh, they, they're overfilled and they, they just cannot cope with what this, this new way of dealing with criminal cases. And so in places like England, where you've got this uh, extreme number of prisons, prisoners that can't be housed anymore in London, they start to get sent out to colonies. Uh, they're sent out to places, penal colonies, that function now as the prison for them uh, as a means to their punishment. And so places like Australia uh, emerge as a result of, uh, of this new practice. Now, another important distinction that has to be made is, is how a punishment is going to be determined. Now, I said a moment ago that we take for granted in our modern Western ideal that every person has equal justice under the law. So a low-status person or a poor person should expect the same justice as a high-status or a wealthy person. There's no distinction in the eyes of the law. Uh, crime is crime. It's the same, and it's the same for anyone who commits it. Now, that's a very modern idea. Now, of course, it doesn't work out in reality, but at least that's the ideal that we aspire to. But again, this is a new idea. This is a sort of as new as of maybe a couple of hundred years ago. Go back 2,000 years, and this is just simply not the case. Your status makes all the difference as to the sort of punishment that you can expect under law. And so different factors are at work in determining 
the type of outcome in a criminal case. For example, if you're a Roman citizen, a Roman citizen can expect a far more lenient punishment than a non-citizen. Take, for example, Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul are both martyred under the Emperor Nero, and we see that Peter was crucified. Why was he crucified? Well, because he wasn't a Roman citizen. Uh, crucifixion was, an ex- was exclusively for a non-citizen. Uh, the idea of crucifying a Roman citizen was just simply anathema. That in and of itself would make the executioner a criminal. And so that's just, you, you, you would never see that happen. Uh, and so Peter, however, because he's not a citizen, Jesus too, are crucified. Whereas when Paul is martyred for the same thing as what Peter does, which is being a Christian, he's martyred through decapitation. It's much cleaner, it's much more merciful, it's the same outcome, but it's far less painful than what you're going to go through in being crucified. So citizenship is absolutely essential. Uh, Another determining factor will be the nature of the crime. And so obviously this is the same today, but the nature of the crime, like a low, uh, a pettier crime, will may be punished or may not be punished depending on the status of the person who does it. So if you're a low status person, then you can expect that you're going to be punished for any and everything. Whereas if you're a high status person, you can pro- you can expect that you're going to get away with a lot more. But another determining factor as well is the status of the defendant versus the status of the accused. And so if the person being accused is of low status and the defendant is of high status, then you can guarantee that the outcome will be that the person who is being accused is going to be punished. Uh, But vice versa, if the uh, status of of the accused person is high status and the defendant is low status, then the defendant is not going to see any justice by virtue of the fact that they're low status. And so, for example, if a low-status person brings charges against a high-status person, not only is the high-status person not going to get punished, there's a good chance that the low-status person will get punished for having the audacity to bring the high-status person's status into question in the first place, for bringing them into a situation where they might be publicly shamed. And so the whole system is working directly against those that are low status, and it's working in favor of those who are high status. And so these factors are by default taken into consideration when a a punishment is being determined, when the outcome of a case is being determined. Your status is absolutely of the most essential thing. In fact, there's a great quote here from, this is directly from Roman law. It says, when a When accused persons are to be placed in custody, the proconsul should determine whether they should be sent to prison, delivered to a soldier, or committed to the care of their their sureties, or to that of themselves. This is usually done after taking into consideration the nature of the crime of which the defendant is accused, or his distinguished rank, or his great wealth, or his presumed innocent, or his reputation." And so in other words, it's written into Roman law that when you determine the outcome of a punishment, you have to first take into consideration, is this a high status person? That will determine automatically the level of punishment that this person can expect to to receive. And so this is the the world that we're we're talking about when we think about Paul and Paul's encounter, uh, well, Paul's encounters with the authorities. And we know later on that Paul is arrested and he spends a couple of years in a Roman prison. Um, But then when we come back to this particular story, we see really clearly just how this, uh, this, this sort of status system plays out within the court 
uh, within the court structure and certainly in the case of Philippi. And so we pick up our story in Acts 16, 16. And this is, uh, we've, we've already seen the story of Paul uh, meeting Lydia. And we don't know when this particular story happened, maybe only within a few weeks of that encounter with Lydia. But it says that once when we were going to the place of prayer, so again, this is back at the place of prayer that we we're talking about last week down, down by the river. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the, by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, this spirit that predicts the future, the Greek there is literally pythona pneuma, so literally a python spirit. And so by this particular spirit, this slave girl is able to predict the future and therefore bring bring wealth for her to owners. Well, what is this spirit that she has? Well, what it is, it's a reference to the Oracle of Delphi. Now, the Oracle of Delphi in the city of Delphi, now that's Delphi geographically is sort of in the middle of, of Greece, whereas Philippi is up in Macedonia, uh, much further north in, in, um, in what is still Greece. Uh, so this Oracle of Delphi was an important site of pilgrimage for people from all around the ancient world to go and hear their future to go and get uh, an idea from the god Apollo, whatever it is that is going to come in their life. And so typically what would happen would be somebody who has a, an important decision to make uh, would go and visit the, the oracle and ask, should I do this? You know, How will this turn out if I go about this particular thing? So this was an important uh, pilgrimage site. Well, what this is suggesting is that this particular girl has that same spirit. So instead of having to go all the way to Delphi in order to get your sort of answer or um, insight from the God, you can do that instead here in Philippi through this young girl. So the oracle itself, what, what actually happens there down in Delphi is that you would go down to uh, sort of speak to this um, this priestess. Now, well, actually, as the story sort of goes, going back to the 8th century, what happened was that there was a, a farmer, a, a shepherd, and he was herding his goats around this particular area where this um, where this uh, oracle was. And one of the goats fell into a crack. Uh, so there was a crack in the earth and this goat fell in. And then it started to behave really strangely. So the guy, the the shepherd goes down to retrieved the goat and he found himself filled with this divine presence. Um, He could sort of see outside the present into the past and into the future. He was having sort of this this hallucinatory sort of experience. And so others, other people hearing about this, when it did the same thing, they wanted to have this same experience of being able to see into the past or see into the future. Now, as it turns out, it's actually a geological uh, phenomenon that's taking place. What's actually happening happening there is that there's a fault line that this region sits on, and what emerges out of that are these sort of toxic uh, gases that come from the earth, sort of these volcanic gases. And what they're doing is actually making people high. So this person's having this trans transcendental sort of experience because he's high. Uh, and so other people are starting to have this it, it, sort of this encounter. And so this kind of creates its own pilgrimage. People wanted to come and, and, and have this same, 
well, what they assumed to be experience with the gods. Well, eventually a number of people started to die as a result of it because, you know, they, you're breathing in toxic fumes. And so what they did is they said, all right, well, rather than people, you know, die uh, as a result of coming here, why don't we appoint a young girl uh, to do the work for us? And so they would appoint a young virgin girl from the local area and she would then be the one to uh, hear from the gods, you know, get high, but what they assumed to be hearing from the god Apollo. And what would happen then would be that there would be uh, priests who would interpret whatever this girl was saying because, you know, she's talking, but she's talking babble because she's in this this hallucinate sort of state. Well, anyway, that became what became the Oracle of Delphi. This became an incredibly important pilgrimage site. In fact, if you want to get a sort of a sense of this, if you've seen the movie 300, and so when um, King Leonidas is trying to figure out, you know, do I go off to war against the Persians? And so he goes up to this Oracle and there's this young girl sort of dancing around in this, this drugged out sort of state. That's actually the Oracle of Delphi somewhat in uh, in sort of movie portrayal. Well, at any rate, this particular girl in Philippi has this spirit. And so she can predict the future. She can do the work of Apollo rather than having to go down to Delphi and, uh, and ask him yourself. So the, as the story continues in verse 17, it says, She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. You know, I used to read this story and I think to myself, why did Paul do this? I mean, this girl seems to be a real supporter. You know, she seems to be Paul's number one cheerleader saying, hey, come and listen to these guys. I mean, Paul doesn't even have to do the work of attracting a crowd. You've got this girl out there saying, no, you need to come and listen to these guys and listen to what they have to say. And it never really sort of dawned on me what the problem here was. Why did Paul turn around and drive this demon out? In fact, how is it that a demon is even saying this kind of stuff? I mean, this sounds like they're just affirming Paul's message. But you've got to look closer at the text, what's actually been said here. First of all, she says, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Well, the most high God would assume that there were many other gods. There's lots and lots of gods, and this one's the best. Well, that's polytheism. That's precisely the thing that Paul is trying to reject, trying to preach against in his message of there is only one God, and Jesus Christ is his representation. So it's a difference but it's a, it's a very subtle difference, but it's a very important difference as well in that this is the very contradiction to what this message actually is. What it's saying is I'm, we're affirming your polytheism that all of these gods are true and they're real and everything else. This God's just better than all of them, that he's just one amongst many gods. Well, again, that is contrary to the very foundations of the Christian faith. But then it says, who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, in the Greek, the the there isn't actually there. So in the Greek, what it actually says is, who are telling you way to be saved. There's no a and there's no the. But in that situation, an a is, imp- is implied. In other words, who are telling you 
a way to be saved. Not the way to be saved, but a way to be saved. In other words, there's lots of different ways to get saved. This is just one of them. So the sum total of her message is there's, there's lots and lots of gods and the, the, God, the one these guys are preaching about is the most high one and there's lots of different ways of being saved. What these guys are saying is just one way to do that. So take all of that together and it is the antithesis to what the Christian message actually is. Now, to a listener, to anyone hearing what this girl was saying, they really wouldn't have heard the difference at all. But for Paul, he knew very well, actually, this completely undermines what I'm trying to do here. And so this is causing me a problem. Now, it's of course, not, it's not the girl who's doing it. It's the demon in the girl who's doing it. And so Paul, uh, well, Paul is probably in a bit of a, he's obviously in a bit of a bind. He lets this go on for a few days because he knows that if he does something about it, he's going to be in all sorts of trouble. He knows that if he drives this demon out, then all hell is going to break loose. He knows the the outcome of what, what is going to come as a result of this. And so he really just doesn't want to do this. You can see he's getting frustrated, but he just doesn't want to respond. But it says after a few days, it was driving him so crazy that he just had to, he had to respond. He had to do the thing that needed to be done, knowing full well the consequences of what was about to take place. So the story continues in verse 19. It says, When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought before them, they brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. All right, quite a bit to unpack here. Uh, well, first of all, the charges that are true of the situation. I mean, what Paul had actually done was to drive out this demon and so that's uh, prevent the slave owners from making money off this girl. They were, they were economic charges. Paul had effectively removed from them their main source of income. He'd, he'd, they no longer had this uh, ability to make money off this girl. So they're economic charges. These are not... This is not a major crime. This isn't a serious issue that's actually happening here. This is something that could have been dealt with through some compensation. So that's the reality of the situation. But it's not actually what we find being brought up when they stand, when they come to the uh, to the seat of judgment. Now, just a little side note: um, check out this week's YouTube video, and you'll actually see me there at the site where this event actually took place. Uh, so you want to get a sort of a visual idea of what the forum at Philippi was like and what was happening here. Um, go and check that video out. But anyway, they come to this to the to the seat of judgment. They come to the magistrates and they say these men are Jews. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, as it turns out, only a few months ago, the Emperor Claudius had driven all of the Jews out of Rome. So there was the whole reason for that was that the Jews were uh, the, the Jews within Rome itself were um, having fights with the Christians about Jesus, and it was starting to get obviously quite abrupt. It was becoming quite clear to the emperor that there were these divisions happening and all of this infighting happening in the Jewish community. And so in order to deal with that, he just got rid of all of them. He just said, you know, get out of here. What that does, however, 
is that it creates a scenario in the empire where, well, if the emperor doesn't like something, then none of us like it because we want to sort of garner the emperor's favor. We want um, to, him to, we want to be seen to agree with him. And so therefore, you know, be on his good side. And so if he doesn't like the Jews, then we don't like the Jews. And the reality was there was always, uh, there was always this sort of suspicion about the Jews. There was always sort of a mockery of the Jews in this time anyway. And so this only heightens what is already a, uh, a sort of a fraught situation. Well, anyway, so here they are bringing up the Paul and Silas and saying these men are Jews. Well, again, what has that got to do with anything? Well, automatically it, offs, it sets them apart from the accusers. Now, I said a moment ago, one of the key things that you uh, have in your favor in a criminal case is Roman citizenship. Now, we know that Paul has that. They don't know that, and that becomes an issue later on. But what these men are doing is that they're drawing attention to the fact that they happen to be Roman citizens, and these guys over here are troublemaking Jews. They're not us. They're not our people. They're not with us. And in a city like Philippi that we saw last week, didn't have a very large Jewish community if it had one at all. Clearly, Paul and Silas are very much outsiders to this situation. And so anything that is brought up against them now is going to be a problem because whatever it is that they've done or haven't done is all, always going to be seen in the worst possible light because they're outsiders and whatever it is they've done, they've done it to good upstanding Roman citizens of this great city of Philippi. And so the charges themselves are that they're throwing our city into an uproar. Well, that's just not true. Paul and Silas are not the ones throwing the city into the uproar. It's them. They're the ones who are causing all of the trouble uh, and, you know, bringing mobs into the forum and all the rest of it. Paul and Silas were very happy going about their merry way, just happy to be left alone. It was these slave owners who were causing all of the trouble in the city. Then he goes on and he says, by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Well, what are these customs unlawful for them as Romans to practice? Well, worshiping Jesus Christ. This is a city loyal to the emperor, loyal to the imperial cult. These men are coming along saying, actually, no, there is no God but uh, Jesus Christ and worship of the emperor. He's no God at all. There are no other gods and, and all of the message that we've seen over in previous episodes. And so what these men have done now is that they've set themselves apart from Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are troublemaking outsider Jews as opposed to these good Philippian Roman citizens who are just trying to, you know, do an honest day's work. And more importantly, we uphold the imperial cult as a good Philippian, as good Philippian citizens loyal to the imperial cult. We uphold that, whereas these guys over here are trying to undermine that. Now, this is a world where, again, if you remember, to undermine the imperial cult is treason. It's a crime of the highest order. Now, we've gone so far from what the actual crime was, which was an economic crime, to now we've got an accusation of proper treason. This is potentially a death sentence if this thing is seen through, which is really exactly what these men want. They want Paul and Silas, at the very best, driven out of the city. But at worst, uh, well, hopefully, maybe in their minds, to have them executed. Now, again, because in their mind, these guys aren't Roman citizens, then it's probably going to be the worst kind of execution imaginable. And that's kind of what they want. That's the sort of the desired outcome 
of all of this. In fact, as it says here in Roman law, it says instigators of sedition and of tumult, which result in the uprising of the people, shall in accordance with their rank either be hanged upon a gallows, thrown to wild beasts, or deported to an island. So they're trying to invoke this law that Paul and Silas are troublemakers, they're insurrectionists, they're, um, they're contradicting or they're undermining the imperial cult. And so as a result of that, based on their status, they're going to be punished and, well, I guess they would assume crucifixion. At maybe the best, they might get hung in the gallows, but certainly it's going to be a bad outcome for Paul and Silas if these men have their way. So the story continues, verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So I said before that there's different levels of um, uh, of punishment depending on what your status is, and that can be whether you're a citizen or a non-citizen. Well, that was true for the way that you got whipped. And so one of the common practices, as we've seen through all of history really, has been flogging. Uh, this you, you flog a person that you don't want to kill. A, a low, sort of a, a lesser crime is generally going to get you flogged. The more serious crimes are going to get you hanged or, in the case of the Romans, crucified. Um, but that's really there's there's really no in between. It's either corporal punishment in the sense of a severe flogging, or it's it's death uh, in sometimes the most brutal sort of ways. Well, even amongst even within the context of flogging, there was a difference within the types of whips that were used. And so, if you were a, a free non-citizen. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, it's very rare that you're going to get flogged. The only way that you can be flogged is if you're absolutely proven guilty, um, that there's no question of uh, of your guilt and that you're, puni- be, you're being punished um, for a more severe crime. Okay, So this is something you can often avoid if you're a citizen. But if you're a non-citizen, if, but if you're a freeborn non-citizen, you can be expected to be beaten with a rod or a staff. Now, the magistrate that in this particular situation, he would have been like all Roman magistrates. He would have had uh, with him all the time would be a small group of, of effectively executioners. That was their job. Uh, what they were called in the Latin is the word lictor, L-I-C-T-O-R. And their job was to implement whatever punishments were being determined. So a, tr- a criminal case could last all of five minutes, the punishment be, be set and then executed on the spot and all of it's done within an hour. And so you go on, you go on your way and the situation is resolved. So the, you, he would have these people with him all the time. And the idea of these lictors was that they were there to actually execute the punishment, but also as a physical representation of his authority. Only he could have those men with him. And what that indicated to everybody was that he was the authority in town. He had the power of life and death. No one else has that power apart from the governor or the magistrate in this case. So that's uh, sort of his, that's what he has and that's their role. Now, what they would be carrying around with them would be a bundle of rods. So big, big, long, big, long rods tied up in a bundle. And in the middle of this bundle of rods would be an axe. And so this, you see, if you look up, well, what this thing is called in the Latin is a fasces, F-A-S-C-E-S, a fasces. And what this was, was the, not just the implement of punishment, but it was also the symbol of his authority. Now it's where we get a word fascism from. 
the word fascism to, uh, means uh, rule by force or, or rule by power. Uh, and so this, um, this, this sort of term comes from this idea of this fascist. So you Google it, F-A-S-C-E-S, um, and you'll see lots of different depictions of this. Well, anyway, that's going to be your typical sort of punishment for a low for a low level sort of crime. You're flogged out in the forum for everyone to, to for everyone to see, stripped naked first, uh, for for the maximum humiliation. <clears throat> your uh, hands tied to a post and then beaten on the spot. Uh, so that's the sort of punishment that Paul and Silas experience here. Now, for the more severe crimes, and and for the or for a slave or for a lower status criminal. What you're going to get flogged, but you're not going to get flogged with beaten with rods. You're going to get flogged with uh, with a whip, with bits of wood, uh, sorry, bits of iron and bone woven into the leather thongs. And so it's the cat of nine tails, but it's basically just loaded with small knives. And the the idea of that is to inflict the max the maximum amount of pain. This well, in reality, this would often kill a person. Um, the, when you crucify somebody before you crucify them, you, you flog them with these, these sorts of whips. Uh, and in, in, in a lot of cases, in fact, the people didn't even make it to the crucifixion because this, uh, this type of flogging was, um, was going to kill them. Now, Paul didn't get that. What he got was the rod, uh, was, was, was beaten by these rods, but even in the, in the sense of, the amount of beating, even that would be determined by the uh, by your status. So if you're a, a sort of a higher status, free freeborn but um, not a citizen, um, maybe of slightly higher status, maybe of a lesser crime, you could get what was called admonitio. So where we get a word admonition from. Um, this is just where it's more of a light corrective beating. It's obviously going to hurt immensely, uh, but it's not as bad as it could be. It's more just to prove a point. Hey, don't do this again because next time it could be a lot worse. The other type of punishment, the more heavier type of punishment, was in the Latin, the verba ratio. Uh, and so this is a much heavier, much harsher punishment. This is really designed to inflict damage. This isn't just to prove a point. This is to actually make sure that you really suffer as a result of your whatever it is that you've done. So the fact that we find out that Paul and Silas's wounds need to be cleaned, um, that they've, you know, the, the, the severity of their punishment seems to be quite bad, what we can assume is that they've got this heavier punishment. So they've been beaten with rods, which is more, the, the lesser, the more merciful flogging, but they've got the heaviest form of it um, by virtue of the, we assume, the crime, which was something more like insurrection, something more like treason. So this is a really bad circumstance, I guess is really the point here. Um, Paul and Silas have, have been beaten in the most severe way. They've been stripped naked. Uh, and then just to add to their humiliation, rather than let them go and carry on their merry way, they throw them in prison just for the heck of it. They don't need to put them there. They've punished them already, but they throw them in prison into the inner cell, which is the most secure and really the most terrible uh, circumstance or the most terrible cell that you can, you can be put in. This particular cell is reserved for the worst of criminals. So again, 
there's no, again, there's no reason for them to be here apart from the added humiliation. And then just to really drive home the point, they put them in stocks. Now, again, you could Google this, the idea of stocks are that you're seated upright and your feet are locked in a sort of, I guess, a block of timber. Like you've got the, you're sort of locked in place in this block of timber. And then your hands, your wrists are locked into that same, at that, into that same piece. Uh, and so you're, hands and your feet are sort of stretched into the same uh, at the into the same level and so you're left there so you're bent your back is bent right over uh, and your feet and your hands are effectively think about when you reach out to touch your toes uh, and the, the, the amount of stretch that you have to reach your toes well imagine them being locked in that place overnight so it's just to add to the humiliation on top of what was already humiliating. They've just had their backs beaten, they've been stripped naked, and now those backs have been stretched out into these stocks in the pitch black, dark inner cell, which is just the worst rat-infested place that you're ever going to find. So all of this together is absolutely horrific. This is the assumption around Paul is that he's a low status Jewish person, or maybe a higher status, but certainly a Jewish outsider, uh, and somebody who is worthy of this sort of punishment. There's no questions being asked here. This is the sort of punishment that a guy like Paul and a guy like Silas can expect to receive based on their perceived status. The problem is, as we know, Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul did not deserve this punishment. Well, he didn't deserve the punishment anyway, but it was actually illegal for them to do this punishment. This is the crazy part. Paul just accepted this punishment from start to finish, and at no point did he raise the issue that he's a Roman citizen. Because the thing about being a citizen, number one, you are exempt from these kinds of punishments. But even if they're not aware that you're a citizen, you can declare your, your citizenship. You can say, civis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. And the minute you make that declaration, everything has to stop. They cannot go on with the punishment until they prove your citizenship. Because if they go ahead with it, knowing that you're a Roman citizen, even if it's been declared that you're a citizen and they go ahead and do this, they themselves become criminally liable for what they've done to a citizen. And so then the question is, why didn't Paul declare his citizenship? Why did he go through with this? He didn't have to do this, but he, yet he doesn't mention a word about his citizenship. All he had to say in that moment was, civis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen, and all of it would have stopped. Now, of course, the next Thing that would have to happen would be you have to prove his citizenship. It's, you, you don't just get taken on your word. Otherwise, everyone would just say, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. Well, you have to prove that you're a Roman citizen. Now, in Paul's possession, there would have been a certificate of citizenship, a testatio. Uh, Paul would have owned that to say that he's a to say that he's a citizen. Now, that's a very, very valuable, very precious document. And it's not like he would have had lots of copies or a digital version of it. He would have had the one copy and that would have been his, um, his proof that he was a citizen. Now, the chances were 
he didn't have that with him in Philippi. Again, you don't want to be traveling around the way that Paul does and constantly at risk of losing such an important document. So he would have had that probably stored back in Tarsus, back where he came from, um, in a secure place, and that would have been where it would have remained so that it was kept safe. Now, Tarsus from Philippi from Tarsus is about 700 miles. Now, that's a long journey uh, in any time, in any context, but especially in the ancient world where to travel 700 miles takes you an awful long time. And so if Paul was uh, to go and get that, well, he wouldn't have been able to get it himself because he was in prison. Um, he, they wouldn't have said to him, oh, okay, go back to Tarsus, get the citizenship, come back, and then we can carry this on. Of course that wouldn't have happened. Paul would have been arrested. He would have been held uh, on these charges, and somebody would have had to go on back and get that for him. That would have cost Paul money. Uh, he would have been the one to have to fund that. Logistically, it was just not possible. Paul was too busy. He just needed to get on with things and, and get, get on with his preaching. So that's uh, a very likely reason why. But even more than that, it would have put Paul at odds with the people that he was preaching to. See, Paul's a Roman citizen. He can get out of this. He has the privilege to be able to get out of these circumstances. But for some of his listeners, some of the people in his church, they wouldn't have had that same luxury. They wouldn't be able to say, oh, well, I'm a citizen, and so I can just get away. I, I can you know, not, not face these circumstances, they would have likely had to go through the circumstances. And so for Paul, in order for him to be able to um, preach to people of lower status or people that aren't citizens with the same, with, with any sort of integrity, he needs to get down to their level. He needs to be able to be heard by them as much as higher status Roman citizens like Paul. So for Paul, the most important thing about his ministry was not his own personal comfort. It wasn't his freedom and rights to be able to come and go as he please and get himself out of punishment when they arise. He can do that, but in doing that, he sets himself apart from the people who don't have that luxury and who don't have that privilege. And so for him to be able to go to those people and be able to preach is far more important in his mind than a few extra scars on his back. Well, that's something of Paul's experience in Philippi. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that's been somewhat illuminating for your reading of, of Acts 16. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series. We're going to look at stories of redemption, and we're going to look at a couple of key figures in the New Testament, including Paul himself, and just the incredible impact that the gospel had in their lives. So join me for that. Um, but otherwise, have a great week, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.